Good morning, everyone. So good to see all of you as we gather this morning uh, for worship once again. As you're making your way in, let me draw your attention to just a handful of things by way of announcement that spring is kind of springing. There's a lot of activity that's also happening here that we want to make you aware about. Please remember, remember tonight at 5, we'll gather back here in the sanctuary for those that are able, our kind of monthly corporate prayer time. We'll be gathering tonight at 5, thinking about, praying about, and asking the Lord's help uh, as we think about missions and our involvement in missions here as a church family. Uh, I've been so helped and encouraged by you as we've gathered for these times of prayer, so I hope that you'll be able to be here and be a part of that tonight. Please remember it's spring break this week, so no Wednesday night activities will resume next week. Next Sunday, we'll be receiving our Annie Armstrong offering for North American Missions. You've been thinking about that, praying about that. We will give toward that offering next Sunday. Uh, Coming up in just a few weeks, Uh, The day after Easter, actually, our senior adults will gather again for lunch and fellowship uh, on that day, 11.30 over in the gym. There are sign-up sheets uh, on the tables as you make your way out. So if you are senior adult demographic, I'm not going to put anybody in that demographic, but if you are senior adult demographic and you want to join us for lunch and fellowship, sign up for that as well. Another sign-up sheet back there. Uh, We are looking for volunteers to help form and then execute uh, a greeting team. We we need some smiling, helpful greeters here. Uh, And so if you would like to be a part of something like that, sign-up sheets are back there for you as well. And then the very last thing that I'll say, we talked about this last Sunday, giving you some weeks uh, to seek the Lord, to pray about this, but coming up on April the 16th, we will begin receiving capital improvement. Love offering here to help us address some of the needs that we have. The ask is that you would just pray uh, right now, that you would ask the Lord how he might uh, help you uh, kind of think through this and then sacrificially give uh, as we seek to be good stewards of the uh, property here that the Lord has entrusted. If you have questions about any of that, grab me, grab one of the elders. We can, you know, kind of answer some questions and point you in the right direction. So good to see you guys. Let me pray for us, and then we will get started with our time of worship together this morning. Lord God, we thank you for another Lord's Day. God, thank you how you have provided for us and you've sustained us over this last week. God, you've brought us again to be with your people, to gather on the Lord's Day, to hear from your word, to lift up your name on high. God, to be built up, to be edified. God, help us to remember on this day that we are not spectators at a show, but Father, we are worshipers as a part of the local church. God, in in everything that we've got going on, in the good and the bad, in, God, the messiness, uh, in the sadness and sorrow, God, in the great joys and victories over sin, God, whatever it is that we've got going on in our lives, help us to remember that God, you delight, you delight to meet with us. Father, you delight when we worship you. God, you delight when we pour those things out to you in prayer. God, you delight in when we come to you even in our brokenness. God, you delight even when, because our hearts might be so burdened, we can barely squeak out the prayer or the song. God, you call us to come 
You call us to behold Your greatness. Father, You call us to worship Your great name. And God, what You will do is that You will come near to us. God, You'll draw near. And You'll be our help today. God, we're so thankful for that. Living in the the world in which we live and dealing with all the things that we deal with, sometimes it's so easy to feel isolated. God, to feel distant from you, from from other people. God, Sundays are a weekly reminder of the gathering together of your people, God, that we are not alone. That you love us, that you are with us. That we have a body of believers to help us bear our burdens. So God, give us great joy today. Encourage us. Lift up our heads, O oh God. And may you and you alone be honored and glorified and praised by our time together. We ask and pray all this in Christ's great name. Amen. Amen. Church family, let's stand as we open with worship. of our God and King, lift up your voice with a sing, oh praise Him, hallelujah, now burning sun with golden beams, now silver moon with softer gleam, oh praise Oh, praise Him. Hallelujah. 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 Did all things their Creator bless and worship Him in
take God's word this morning as we continue in worship, hearing from the word of the Lord, being reminded yet again from Hebrews that Jesus is better. He is the true and better. He is the one to whom all scripture is pointing. We are so thankful for Christ, his work for us. Hebrews chapter 9 is where we are together this morning, reminding ourselves that through Christ, we have a better covenant, a more full and complete covenant through His blood, which has secured us for all eternity, saints. So as we read and as we hear from God's Word, we're pointed to Christ. Continue in worship as we reflect on His goodness. Hebrews 9, starting in verse 1. Now, even the first covenant had regulations of divine worship in the earthly sanctuary. For there was a tabernacle prepared, the outer one, which were the lampstand and the table and the sacred bread. This is called the holy place. Behind the second veil, there was a tabernacle, which is called the holy of holies, having a golden altar of incense and the ark of the covenant covered on all sides with gold, in which was a golden jar holding the manna and Aaron's rod, which budded in the tables of the covenant. And above it were the cherubim of glory, overshadowing the mercy seat, but of these things we cannot now speak in detail. Now, when these things have been so prepared, the priests are continually entering the outer tabernacle, performing the divine worship. But into the second, only the high priest enters once a year, not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the sins of the people committed in ignorance." The Holy Spirit is signifying this, that the way into the holy place has not yet been disclosed while the outer tabernacle is still standing, which is a symbol for the present time, 
Accordingly, both gifts and sacrifices are offered which cannot make the worshiper perfect in conscience, since they relate only to food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until a time of reformation. But when Christ appeared, As a high priest of the good things to come, he entered through the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this creation, and not through the blood of goats and calves, but through his own blood. He entered the holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer, sprinkling those who have been defiled, sanctify for the cleansing of the flesh... How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered Himself without blemish to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? For this reason, He is the mediator of a new covenant, so that since a death has taken place for the redemption of the transgressions that were committed under the first covenant, those who have been called may receive the promise of the eternal inheritance. For where a covenant is, there must of necessity be the death of the one who made it. For a covenant is valid only when men are dead, for it is never in force while the one who made it lives. Therefore, even the first covenant was not inaugurated without blood. For when every commandment had been spoken by Moses to all the people according to the law, he took the blood of the calves and the goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book itself and the people, saying, This is the blood of the covenant which God commanded you. And in the same way, he sprinkled both the tabernacle and all the vessels of the ministry with the blood. And according to the law, one may almost say all things are cleansed with blood, and without shedding of blood there is no forgiveness. Therefore, it was necessary for the copies of the things in the heavens to be cleansed with these, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ did not enter a holy place made with hands, a mere copy of the true one, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. Nor was it that he would offer himself often, as the high priest enters the holy place year by year, with blood that is not his own. Otherwise, he would have needed to suffer often since the foundation of the world. But now, once at the consummation of the ages... He has been manifested to put away sin by the sacrifice of Himself. And inasmuch as it is is appointed for men to die once, and after this comes judgment, so Christ also, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time for salvation without reference to sin to those who eagerly await him. Church, would you be seated? And as you do so, let's go to the Lord in prayer together this morning. Father, we have sung this morning of Christ, who is the true and the better. Father, being reminded that from the beginning of your word to the end of your word, that we are being told the story 
Christ. That everything is unto and for Him. God, that everything is by Him. That through Christ, the better sacrifice, the better blood, that through Christ, we have an eternal redemption. By His obedience, by His laying down of His life, by going to the cross, by scorning its shame, out of a great love unto you and for those He came to save, Christ goes and offers once for all time His own body and His own blood. Father, we read in Hebrews 9 that not only have those things happened, but God, that there is a, a future redemption that we still await. When Christ, who is alive, ruling and reigning, seated at Your right hand, when Christ will come again and take His people home. God, what we need this morning is to be reminded of these glorious truths. That it is all of Christ. That everything that we have and hope for is in Him. God, for the one in the room that doesn't know the Lord Jesus Christ as Savior this morning, they must hear this, O oh God. So would you give them the ears to hear? God, would you give them the faith to believe? And God, would you, by your sweet grace, draw them to this understanding and to this faith? Father, for your people gathered in this room, we need to remember this. God, we need to remember the gospel. God, we need to remember so that it gives shape to our daily lives, how we live for you and how we interact with others. So God, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you for him, the author and perfecter of our faith. God, we thank you that in Christ is fullness. And in Christ alone is salvation. God, you are good. God, I think you are better than we even know. Your grace is sweeter than we can imagine. God, help us to continue to behold wonderful things about you and your word. God, help us to respond accordingly. And we ask, pray it in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Church family, sing this chorus out with me. In Alleluia, Alleluia, praise the one risen Son of God. In Throne of 
have a strong and perfect plea, a great high priest whose name is love, whoever lives in peace for me. My name is graven on his hands, my name is written on his within a word I look and see him there who made an end to all my sin because the sinless Savior died my sinful soul is counted free for God the just is satisfied to look on
Sunday in March, so we are wrapping up our verse in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 10. So if you would, recite it with me out loud. I hope you've taken this month to commit it to memory. If not, there's still a few days left. 
So take some time. This is a splendid verse of correction and direction for us. And so I hope you will avail yourself to committing it, etching it, etching it on your soul. So if you would repeat with me out loud from 2 Corinthians 7.10. You ready? All right. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. 2 Corinthians 7.10. So as we've talked through this verse at the very end, worldly grief produces death. That a grief in accordance with what is common to the world that presently produces, brings about, culminates death. And that death is explicit. It's not corruption. It's not tarnishing. It is dead. Death. So the warning is clear for us. That throwing out a simple PR statement of I've done wrong is not is not what God entails and intends for true repentance. Colossians 3 gives us such incredible instruction. I'll encourage you to read it, take a look at it, put to death the things in which you once walked. Put to death the ways of sin and self and the flesh. That as a believer, true repentance in perpetuity is putting to death what is so common and what is so evident in the world and that we once walked in to put those things to death and to bring to life the things that God has done, who He is, and what He has given us in His Word. It should be a daily practice in our lives, and I hope that is, because... Worldly sorrow, worldly grief, worldly repentance does not produce life-giving restoration. It brings about death and continues death. Our only hope is Christ. Would you cling to Him? Pray with me if you would. Father God, I thank You. God, I thank You that Your Word, Lord, cuts down to the very foundation of who we are. That God, as we seek often, I know it's often true of me in my own life, and I Imagine it's true, Lord, across the board that we justify ourselves in sin. That I seek at times to justify what I've done, to hide something in an effort to preserve it, to keep it. And that, God, Your Word cuts through that. God, I thank You that, Lord, this Scripture, as it tells us, that that grief that we have over sin that isn't leading to life change, it's not leading from a place of regretlessness that as we, re- we have no regret for a sin that we would return to it one day, but that we, Lord, would turn from it fully and completely, forsaking it. That that in accordance with godly grief that you intend, God. That God, that would be, Lord, that would be what we, we do. That would be our heart. And I thank you that your word here in this one verse so succinctly puts it. That God, if, if what we deem is conviction and sorrow and repentance is merely a statement, it's merely temporal, it's merely something to persuade and assuage, and it's not God. It's not a full devotion over to you, a recognition of 
the eternal death and destruction that our sin deserves and what that has done before you that God that would not be that would not be what we do that Lord is worldly and will bring about death and so father would you help us this morning may your word as you say that it cuts it cuts down to the soul of who we are that God may it do that today for us May we hear you clearly. God, would you help us where we have withheld certain aspects of sin and selfishness and we've withheld these things in order to to squeeze out some joy that we think we would receive from it. God, would you reveal to us with clarity that all we are doing is playing with death with something that's going to kill us, something that is killing us. God, would you help us, God, this morning to recognize clearly what it is and who you are, that you sent your Son to save us from our sin and from death. And God, would you bring us, Lord, to repentance this morning? Would you bring us to faith in your Son as he is high and lifted up, glorious King that he is? That God, our lives would be before you, at your feet, and that, uh, Lord, we would humble ourselves before you. We thank you, God, for your grace and your mercy. We thank you that in his one sacrifice, sin is done with. Never to be returned to. That in your return, Christ, you will be coming to gather your people who have gone before us and who are alive to be with you for eternity. And so, Father, would you fill us with that joy, fill us with that promise that you have done it, you have completed the work of paying for sin, of of taking care of that judgment in the cross, and that what awaits your people is your embrace, is to sit before you in celebration. God, we thank you and ask all these things in the name of your Son, Jesus. Amen. And church family, would you take God's word and once again join me in Matthew's gospel, Matthew chapter 5 this morning. One verse again before us, Matthew chapter 5, verse 5, the third beatitude as we're making our way through the beginning portion of this sermon on the mounts. I want to just connect you a little bit to the flow of these beatitudes because I think in seeing and understanding how these Beatitudes kind of flow one into another, how they fit together, it'll cause our text this morning in verse 5 to really begin to make some sense in our hearts as we're seeking to study and apply these things together. Just look back to verse 3 there, to the first Beatitude we saw a couple of weeks ago, blessed are those who are the poor in spirit, right? So blessed are those who know that they are poor, that they have nothing to bring before God whereby they might make themselves right with God. They come empty-handed with nothing clinging only to the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. As a result, there in verse 3, theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Then in verse 4, the followers of Jesus Christ, they know some things and they begin to understand some things about their sin. Number one, they know that their sin has violated God's holiness. They know, secondly, that their sin has separated them from God. And thirdly, they know about their sin, that it has cost 
Jesus his life. And so as a result of that, there is a right mourning, a grief over their sin, what it has done to their relationship with God, and what it has done to the Lord Jesus Christ. The comfort we find there is that when we mourn and grieve rightly, we are met by the gracious comfort of God. God desiring to lift our heads to show us that we are not under condemnation, that all of that has been settled at the cross of Christ. And now, as we come to verse 5, those who know their spiritual poverty, those who rightly mourn over their sin, that now begins to do a work in their lives. A practical work. Not just merely a theological idea, but it actually now begins to give some shape to their lives and how they live before God and others. And in verse 5, we find that true disciples have a gentleness about them and a promise that they will inherit the earth. Look in verse 5, these just few words here before us, but so full of truth. Blessed are the gentle for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are the gentle, for they shall inherit the earth. As we've said about these Beatitudes, they often appear, at least at a first glance, they appear to be a paradox. They appear to be two things that just don't really seem to fit together. And when we come to verse 5 and this third beatitude, here is the most glaring example of that. Blessed are the gentle, for they are the ones who will inherit the earth. You read verse 5 and you immediately know in your mind, hey, this is not the way that the world in which I'm living in, that's not the way that the world functions. Blessed are the gentle, for they inherit the earth, we know that we live in a culture that is dog-eat-dog. It is only the strong survive. We live in a culture where might makes right. The world lives out this faulty understanding that meek people, gentle people, they get nothing in this life. If you are meek in the eyes of the world, that is weakness. And weakness gets run over, it gets climbed over, it gets pushed aside and inherits nothing. After all, nice guys finish where? The world tells us they finish last. A song from, I guess, my generation, the 90s, said this. Some of you laugh as I say that. But the song from the 90s said it this way, nice guys finish last, your sympathy will get you left behind. That's the idea of the world. Meek people, gentle people, those are weak people. And they don't inherit anything. In fact, we, we kind of need to, to push them aside and, and climb over them. And it doesn't really matter how they feel about things or what we do to them, just so long as we get what's coming to us. Beloved, however, in the life of the church and in the kingdom of God, which is what we're seeing in this Sermon on the Mount, here's what the kingdom looks like, and if you are an inhabitant of the kingdom, here's what your life is going to look like. In the kingdom of God, 
in the life of the church, particularly here among us as the local church of faith family, those who have been graciously redeemed by a merciful Savior, what becomes more and more true about us is that gentleness becomes the flavor of our lives. It becomes the aroma as we interact with one another and as we live out the life that God has called us to live. Our interactions with one another inside the local church, our interactions with those outside the church, they will be marked and defined by a gentle humility that cares well for others and that mirrors the gentle humble care that the Lord Jesus Christ has first lavished upon us. And so as we come to verse 5, and we want to tease these things out, I want to think maybe a little broadly for a moment, then I want to get a little more practical, and then I want us to ask, how do we do this? But here's kind of the one idea, the big idea that we're driving at in verse 5. It's very simple. You see this on the words in the words of Scripture here, that true followers of Christ, true disciples of the kingdom, they walk in humility in this life, and they gain the whole world in the next. That's what verse 5 is telling us. Are you a disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ this morning? If so, then this is what your life will look like. You will walk in humility in this life and gain the whole world in the next. Blessed are the gentle For they shall inherit the earth. What does that word gentle mean in verse 5? Some of your Bibles are uh, rightly translating that word to meek, to right understanding there. Both of those words essentially meaning the same thing. The word here means lowly. It's a lowliness of hearts. It is a meekness of the hearts. It is a humility that begins not in what we do or not in what we say, but it begins where? It begins in the heart. Church, never forget that everything that we do, everything that we think, everything that we say, everything that is outward begins somewhere. Scripture tells us that that begins in our hearts. And so when we're thinking about this idea of gentleness, meekness, humility, that is going to be a general disposition of our souls, of our hearts. Gentleness is a condition of the heart that in light of verses 3 and 4, of our spiritual poverty, of God's amazing grace, and over the understanding of what our sin is and does, gentleness then becomes the disposition of our hearts that seeks to do what? It seeks to lower self and it seeks to raise up others. Gentleness does not start with the outward things that we do, but it starts with the heart. And here's what a gentle heart just kind of broadly, generally begins to say. It says in line of verse 3, I could not have saved myself. God did that. A gentle heart says, I am a recipient of amazing grace that saved a wretch like me. A gentle heart says, if I rightly understand the gospel, I will not live to advance myself. 
I will not strut about as though I am the greatest reality in the room and I will not live to be made much of, but I will live to make much of God and others. A gentle heart is a general disposition that says, frankly, I've just had the swagger knocked out of me by the Gospel. It is the Gospel that has humbled me. It is the work of the Lord Jesus Christ on His cross. It is the idea that with every hammer blow upon a nail, that the arrogant swagger is being gospeled right out of me and now puts me in a place of gentle humility. A gentle heart lives not to be served, but to serve. Beloved, remember that the fruit of the Spirit, Galatians chapter 5, verse 23, this fruit that is going to be true of us if we are saved, if God's Spirit is in us, Galatians 5.23 tells us that part of that fruit is what? It is gentleness. So here's the point. This, this is not negotiable for the believer. This is not, well, some people are just kind of, you know, naturally disposed to being a little more timid or kind or whatever. I'm not really cut that way, so this doesn't really apply to me. No, what Scripture is reminding us of is that for all who are in Christ, that we are to be those who are gentle. If you are truly born again, what will begin to naturally flow from your life by the Spirit's work is gentleness. An arrogant, self-serving Christian, that's an oxymoron. Those things don't go together. An arrogant Christian, like that, the Bible knows nothing of that. Because the Gospel, it makes us new creatures. And the Gospel takes the rough, an abrasive saltiness out of us so that what begins to flow, the cool and refreshing streams of gentleness. So then, what does that look like in our lives? What does gentleness, meekness, humility, what does that look like in our lives? So again, it's a general disposition. We've said that. It's a disposition of our renewed Heart, but then at some point, if this is in your heart, it becomes kind of who you are in your soul, then that's going to begin to work itself out in your daily practical life, in your marriage, with your kids, at work, with your neighbor, at the ball field, in the classroom. You're in Christ, this gentleness is going to begin to flow from you. So when it does, what does it practically look like? I think we could sit around all day and think through this. Let me just mention five or six things that I think this begins to practically look like in our lives. Gentleness practically looks like kindness of word and deed when you are sinned against. It's kindness toward others in both word and deed when you are sinned against. Think about it this way. It's one thing for you to say about yourself, I am a dirty, rotten, beggar, poor sinner. 
But what about when somebody comes to you and says, hey, you know what? You're a dirty, rotten, beggar, poor sinner. It's one thing for you to say it, but what about when somebody comes to you and maybe it's not what they say to you, maybe it's something they do to you, they sin against you, they wound you. In that moment, gentleness looks like I'm going to be kind in this moment Though I have been sinned against, and here's why, because Romans chapter 2 verses 4 and 5 says that it is the kindness of God that led me to repentance. God was kind to me when I sinned against Him, and so now gentleness flowing out of my life is going to look like kindness toward others. In that moment... When you've been sinned against, somebody says something about you that is hurtful, that is cutting. Gentleness, I think, looks like this quote from Charles Spurgeon. If any man thinks ill of you, do not be angry with him, for you are worse than he thinks you to be. It's understanding rightly who you are, God's grace upon your life. And when you're sinned against, you're not angry. For honestly, I'm far worse than even you can imagine. Secondly, I think gentleness looks like just not being boastful. Not being boastful. Gentleness is not having to talk about yourself and angle your conversations towards yourself. Someone has said this, that the mark of meekness is not the absence of assertiveness. It's the absence of self-assertion. Gentleness is, I don't have to insert myself into every single thing. I don't have to put myself in every conversation. I don't have to be the hero of the story. I don't have to brag. I don't have to boast. You know how we do this. We angle conversations. Having a conversation with somebody and we just insert a word or a phrase just so that a little more light shines on me and so that people think better of me. It's just not being boastful. C.S. Lewis said, humility is not thinking less of yourself. It is thinking of yourself less. Just kind of removing yourself from the need of having to be noticed. It's also about not being boastful regarding your sin. Sometimes we do this. We just boast about our sin. We say things like, that's just how I am. Y'all just got to deal with it. And beloved, that's not, that's not the gospel at work in us. The gospel comes in and knocks off those, those rough edges. It begins to soften and gentle us. Then thirdly, I think it practically looks like just simply putting others before self. Once you're out of the way, now you have the capacity to make life about others, not just yourself. It's Philippians chapter 2, verses 3 and 4. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, let each of you regard one another as more important than yourself. Do not look out for your own personal interest but also for the interest of others. It's just simply putting others before yourself. Gentleness looks like I don't have to have my way all the time. Gentleness looks like 
I can put the desires and the needs and the preferences, my wife, my children, my church family, I put those in front of mine. And so if I don't get what I want, it's okay. It's okay. Fourthly, gentleness practically looks like trusting God and not taking matters into your own hands. Listen, you're going to be sinned against. And what do you expect? You're a sinner living among other sinners. You're going to be sinned against. Even within the context of the church, as regrettable as that is, and as much as we try to avoid that, there's going to come a moment where we sin against one another. A gentle heart looks like in that moment, I'm just going to trust God in this. And I'm not going to seek to take matters into my own hands. There's a really extreme example of this in Scripture. And I I point you to the extreme example because I want us to see how distasteful it is when we take matters into our own hands. Just a couple of verses in Genesis chapter 4, verses 23 and 24. There's a guy there by the name of Lamech. Lamech has married a couple of wives. And apparently in the course of life, a couple of things have happened to him. A guy has come along and somehow has wounded him, seems to be physical in nature. And then also a a child uh, has come along and and maybe wounded, has struck or slapped. And I want you to listen to what Lamech says. Listen to my voice, you wives of Lamech. Give heed to my speech, for I have killed a man for wounding me and a boy for striking me. If Cain is is avenged sevenfold, then Lamech seventy-sevenfold. Isn't that just distasteful, clearly brutal, over the top to be sure? It's an extreme example. But again, I point us to that so that we understand the distastefulness of taking matters into our own hands. And that when we take matters into our own hands, we are in fact declaring to God, God, I don't need you on this one. I've got this. I'm sufficient. I'm enough. I'm wise. God, you take a back seat on this one. It's just another way that we strut about and show our strength. Fifthly, gentleness looks like forgiving and showing grace when you are sinned against. It's forgiving one another and showing grace to one another when you are sinned against. Puritan Thomas Watson said, a meek spirit is a forgiving spirit. Gentleness does not withhold forgiveness because God has first forgiven you. If you're withholding forgiveness, holding that grudge, if you're holding that word or that deed that was done to you that was sinful, but if you're holding that against the other person's accounts and not forgiving them, you're not being gentle toward them. Gentleness does not withhold forgiveness, but it applies Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 32. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ also has forgiven you. Lastly, I think gentleness practically looks like just being slow to anger, being slow to 
to anger. James chapter 1, verses 19 and 20. Let everyone be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. For the anger of man does not achieve the righteousness of God. You want to grow in gentleness? You want to grow in this area? Be slow to anger. Again, Thomas Watson said, A meek spirit, like wet wood, it will not easily take fire. A meek spirit has been doused with grace. Constant, flowing grace from God. And what that then means about me is that when someone comes along and they throw a spark, my life is not going to easily catch fire and rage because I know of God's grace. I delight to give that grace to others. Church, in, in some, we could say, or in summation, we could say that a gentle spirit looks like the Lord Jesus Christ. Turn just a few pages over to Matthew chapter 11. I want us just to see Jesus as the perfect fulfillment of this. And then ask the Lord that He would pattern our lives after the Lord Jesus Christ. Matthew 11, look down to verse 28. Come to Me, all who are weary, heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take My yoke upon you and learn from Me For I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, my burden is light. Look down in chapter 12, verse 18. Behold, my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved in whom my soul is well pleased, I will put my spirit upon him. He shall proclaim justice to the Gentiles. He will not quarrel, nor cry out, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. A battered reed, he will not break off. A smoldering wick, he will not put out until he leads justice to victory. And in his name, the Gentiles will hope. Back in Matthew 5, verse 5, what's the end result for those who are gentle? They shall inherit the earth. To inherit, you know what this means, it means to receive from another. It means to receive the inheritance. You are the heir and you receive this glorious inheritance. Throughout Scripture, Old and New Testaments alike, God's blessing and God's favor and God's salvation upon His people is so often referred to as the receiving of an inheritance. In Numbers chapter 26, verse 55. Numbers chapter 33, verse 54. Deuteronomy chapter 26 and verse 1. All of those verses are speaking about the Israelites obtaining the land of promise, the land of Canaan, and it's always described as receiving an inheritance. And then you make your way to the New Testament. Salvation through the Lord Jesus Christ is described in in like terms as receiving an inheritance. You can reference Romans chapter 8, verse 17. 
Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 4. Hebrews 6, verse 12. Revelation 21 and verse 7. But let me turn us to one place in the New Testament. 1 Peter chapter 1. 1 Peter chapter 1. Look there with me. And here we see beautifully described this inheritance given to the people of God. 1 Peter chapter 1, starting in verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to His great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed at the last time. Again, the world says meek, gentle, humble people inherit nothing. God's Word says meek, gentle, humble people inherit the earth. It's not that we can produce enough greatness to earn this inheritance, but that in our gentleness we display that we are in Christ and therefore glorious recipients of this inheritance. What do we inherit? Verse 5, we inherit the earth. What does that mean? We inherit the earth. Jesus is actually using here Old Testament language from Psalm chapter 37, verse 11. But the humble will inherit the land and will delight themselves in abundant prosperity. Revelation chapter 5, verse 10. You have made them to be kingdom and priests to our God and they will reign upon the earth. One of the more beautiful motifs that you will find all throughout Scripture is that God always has a special land for His special people. How does the Bible begin? It begins with creation and then we're drawn into what? A garden. What's happening in that garden? In that special land, God puts His special people. And it's a land in which God communes and fellowships with them. Fast forward to all that we know about the land of Canaan as that's developed in the following, following books of the Old Testament. What is God doing in that? He's rescuing His people from Egypt and taking them where? He's taking them to the land flowing with milk and honey. The land of promise. The land that He promised Abraham and all of His descendants. And then fast forward all the way to the very end of the Bible. Do you remember where the Bible ends? It ends just as it began. It ends in a special land where God's special people dwell and where God walks and communes with them in the cool of the day. When we think of heaven, when we think of the glory to come, we need to think less, you know, fat little angels on a cloud with a harp. And we need to think more of a garden, of a land, a land flowing with milk and honey, a good land, a perfect land, a land where God is king, a land where God communes with his people, a land where there is no arrogance, no brashness, but a land filled with the gentleness of grace. 
John Stott said this, the godless, they may boast and throw their weight about, yet real possession eludes their grasp. The meek, on the other hand, although they may be deprived and disenfranchised by men, yet because they know what it is to live and reign with Christ, can enjoy and even possess the earth. Then, on the day of the regeneration, there will be new heavens and a new earth for them to inherit. Thus, the way of Christ is different from the way of the world. And every Christian, even if he is like Paul in having nothing, can yet describe himself as possessing everything. Because those who are disciples of Christ, they walk in humility and they gain the whole earth in the life to come. So then last question, how do we cultivate this kind of gentleness in our hearts? With everything that is at stake, with everything that we see that this means, how do we cultivate this in our own souls? Again, just a handful of things. Number one, seek humility. Listen, you're not going to accidentally stumble your way into gentleness and humility. you got to seek it out. This is why God's Word in the prophet Zephaniah, that's in the clean part of your Bible, by the way, Zephaniah chapter 2 and verse 3 says, Seek the Lord, all you humble of the earth who have carried out His ordinances. Seek righteousness. Seek humility. Beloved, you got to look for it. How do we look for it? We do that through prayer. Listen, the only way that you and I are going to have the gospel working in our lives so that it knocks the swagger out of us and that it makes us gentle, the only way we get there is through prayer. The natural default of our souls is not toward gentleness. The natural fruit of sin in our lives is not gentleness. It's arrogance, it's rude, it's being brash, it's boastful. So if we want it, we're going to have to seek it, and we're going to have to seek it through prayer. So, if you would say about yourself this morning, I'm, just, I'm struggling here. Struggling in being gentle toward others. Struggling with an arrogance in my heart that's consistently trying to raise me up. Love it, pray. Before you do anything else, pray. Secondly, remember James chapter 4 and verse 6. How do we cultivate this? Remember James chapter 4 and verse 6. God is opposed to the proud, but He gives grace to the humble. None of us, none of us would say, you know what? I'm kind of ready, willing, and able to go toe-to-toe with God. I want to fight it out. I think I can win that. None of us say that, right? But when we walk in proud, boastful arrogance, we are lining ourselves up in direct opposition to God. He is absolutely opposed to the proud. I think one of the reasons why that's true, maybe the primary reason why that's true, is that because our pride seeks to rob God of glory 
And God has already told us in His Word, I will not share my glory with another. God is opposed to the proud, but He gives grace to the humble. Don't we want grace from God? We feel that as the great need of our souls. And remember James 4, 6 and walk in humility. Thirdly, let's remember the Gospel. Remember the good news of what God has done for you in His Son, Jesus Christ. Remember that God saved you through the work of His Son. You are not saved by your own work. You are saved by the work of another. And because that is true, because we are saved by grace, church, there can be no room in boasting about ourselves. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, salvation is by grace, you remember? It's not of works so that no man may boast before God. Remember the Gospel. Daily, remembering the work of Jesus Christ on your behalf will help you crucify pride, and arrogance, and in a non-gentle spirit about you. Remember, That in the Gospel, Jesus has first been gentle toward you. A couple more. Fourthly, view others as fellow image bearers who are desperately in need of the grace of Jesus just like you. How do I cultivate gentleness? When it comes to your interactions with others, view them as fellow image bearers, created by God, bearing the image of God, and they are in desperate need of grace. Just like you and I are in desperate need of grace. Again, the aroma of our gathering, of our being together, of the life of the church is that of grace. We have been saved by grace. We are being kept by grace. And we constantly dispense the sweetness of grace to one another. And then lastly, just in our interactions with others, view others, view other people as people to love and serve, not as problems to fix. Here's what I mean by that. View others as people to love and serve, not as a problem that needs to be fixed. When you view people as a problem to fix, and when you then necessarily view yourself as the one who can fix them, you will absolutely grow arrogant in your heart. You will begin to believe and live out a false reality that communicates to that other person what you really need is me. And church, I love you. And you love me. But at the end of the day, what we need most is the Lord Jesus Christ. And our responsibility toward one another is to view people as objects to love and to serve and to point to whom? Christ. And then, when they come to Jesus, they'll be helped. Whatever problems are going on, Jesus will fix those problems. 
It's not to say that we do nothing, that we don't, uh, that we don't serve and, 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 and help and, and all those things. But ultimately what we're doing is that we're pointing people away from me as the source of your fix and we're pointing people to Jesus. If people become your project, you will grow frustrated with them when inevitably they don't and their lives don't line up with your plan for their life. I know how to fix you. Just do ABC one, two, three, and you'll be all better by morning. And then when the inevitable moment comes when they don't do that, and you have to keep having that same conversation over and over and over again, which by the way, that's what the Bible's doing with us over and over and over again. It's just reminding us of the gospel. Paul even says it's no, it's no big deal for me to remind you of these things. If we're viewing them as problems to fix, when, when they don't line up, with the plan that we make for their lives, you'll grow frustrated with them. You'll stop being gentle toward them. And you'll begin to believe that you're the wisest thing in the room, that you're the greatest reality that people need. How do we need to respond to this, church? How does your heart need to respond to this today? Do you need to come to Christ because you don't know Him? You're trying to work out your own salvation. You're trying to work your way to heaven. And it's just this frustrating endeavor. You go from one bad thing to the next. There's a reason for that. And that reason is is the sin that's working in you. And the only answer for that is for you to come to the Lord Jesus Christ. Not just to make your life better. That's not the Gospel. But to save you from your sin and from the wrath of a holy God. Come to Christ today. Stop your striving. Church, follower of Christ, How do you need to respond to this? Where does gentleness need to be cultivated in your life? What relationship do you have where it's just hard for you to be gentle? Start there. And see how the Lord would have you to respond to this. For blessed are the gentle, for they shall inherit the earth. Father, We know, God, we've been reminded this morning that in the Gospel there is kindness. That in Christ there is a humility that left the glory of heaven and became man and died on a shameful cross. Father, we're reminded that had Your Spirit not awakened our dead souls, God, we would still be in our sin. God, in light of the fact that we are poor, in light of the fact of what our sin is and has done, oh God, help us to remember the Gospel and let it produce the fruit of gentleness in us. God, Your Spirit knows what Your people need. God, Your Spirit knows how to move and to work into the hearts of Your people. How to infiltrate arrogance and pride. How to knock off those rough edges and to produce a gentleness in Your people. 
God, we're trusting Your Spirit to do its work. Your Word has gone forth. Your Spirit is our teacher. And now, Father, by the power of the Spirit, we will apply these things to our lives. Sanctify Your people, O God. May it be known of faith, family, fellowship in this community, in this county, in this state. God, may it be that we are known as those who not only boldly proclaim the Gospel, but those who live it out in a sweetness and a humility, God, before You and others. So continue to work that into us, we ask, and we pray through Christ our Lord. Amen. Amen. Church, let's respond. To-